Welcome to the Crystal Clear Podcast with Weekly Standard founder and editor-at-large, Bill Crystal. I'm Eric Pelton. Bill, uh, Donald Trump has been away at the G20 summit, and um, there was a very savvy commentator on matters political and uh, world historic who, who tweeted, Trump's speech in Warsaw was an appropriate, even eloquent speech worthy of a president speaking for America. Hashtag credit where credit is due. What do you make of that? That was me, and I uh, i guess people are unaccustomed to seeing me praise Trump. I got a huge amount of negative. I gather I don't really look at these comments, you know, for responses. What are they called? Yeah, that notifications way on Twitter. Total madness. But I gather people, my new liberal followers who like me because I'm critical of Trump a fair amount of the time, were very horrified that I would praise him when he gave an 85% good speech, really, and very much a speech in the spirit, I thought, of Reagan and Bush and the mainstream of American presidents. A little bit of touches of Steve Bannonism here and there, but but not too much. And um, I thought it was a good speech. And I thought the trip as a whole, insofar as we now, we're not quite, as we speak, it's not quite done, uh, seems to have been a normal trip, which is to say, I'm sure we'll find out later whether he, some of what was discussed in detail at meetings with Putin and Xi and others, uh, whether real achievements happened or just Happy talk, friendly talk, not so happy talk, but it was a relief for those of us who've been worried that Trump wouldn't even kind of get to the minimal standards of an American president abroad in terms of representing the country and conducting sort of basic diplomacy. This was somewhat reassuring. He still couldn't resist, of course, a few tweets attacking, I think, President Obama and the news media and CNN. Not really what you want an American president to be doing when he's at a foreign, on foreign soil and at a summit of world leaders. But those seem to have been con- con- confined to his to his early morning uh, tweeting habit. It is a measure, though, of where we've come that that glimpses of normality are cause for celebration. Yeah, that is, and I mean the Putin meeting, which was a couple of hours, and I guess it was just the president, the two presidents, and um, the two foreign, foreign minister Lavrov, Secretary of State Tillerson, and a couple of translators. So, not a whole lot of people to give us readouts of that. Uh, it sounds like uh, Trump at least raised the question of hacking of our uh, uh, election debate and election uh, the election process in the sense of releasing the emails and so forth, which I think was important for him to raise. We, we don't quite know how aggressively he did. And I guess Lavrov was putting out that he accepted Putin's explanation. I think that's not true, or at least Tillerson seems to indicate that's not true. Uh, but otherwise, they may have made a tiny bit of progress in Syria. I'm a little doubtful. Um, people overstate the importance of these meetings. Obviously, what matters is what really happens in the real world. But as I say, I think it, if you if you really were worried that and there was some reason to worry about this, that Trump would just sort of blow everything up at his first few foreign trips, I think you could say stepping back that's six a, that's months. That's an awkward in, metaphor, blowing yeah, up. When yeah, you're talking I guess I should diplomacy with the, I guess, so, I guess the former I sh- Soviet Union. I guess that's right. But I, I would say, all in all, what has he had now? Three foreign trips, maybe. Um, they've been less bad than I might have feared. The system is kind of constraining him, which is good. I don't agree, God knows, with everything that's being done, or I do things differently, or emphasize some things more. And I'm still worried that the world is basically not in good shape, and I'm not sure we're doing enough to get it in better shape. But I am, as I say, slightly less alarmed, perhaps, than I was four or five months ago. There was one thing that that struck me, and I wonder if you think I'm reading too much into this. Um, When Donald Trump had this meeting, as you mentioned, it was a very small meeting, uh, the the foreign minister from Russia with Putin, the secretary of state with the president from the U.S., and two translators. And uh, there, there were some commentators 
who were saying, wow, this really played to Putin's hand. Putin got what he wanted. He prefers these kind of small meetings where he can exert his, um, his personality. What I took away from that was I wonder if Trump is still feeling that he can't trust his foreign policy advisors not to speak out of school and thus was was out to radically limit the number of people who were in this meeting and thus the number of people who could comment on it. I think that's quite possibly true. I think I saw a little of the commentary of people's, oh, what was Trump doing? I mean, they're overdoing this, often in a meeting with a major leader, leader of another major country. They're pretty tight, and if it's a delicate matter, not that uncommon for the president to have only the secretary of state with him. I seem to recall George H.W. Bush, when I was in the White House working with Vice President Quayle, having some of the meetings, maybe with Gorbachev and others, with just Secretary of State Baker and maybe a translator, even Scowcroft, who was so close to Bush. I'm not sure was in all those meetings. But I think it may also be true that Trump is sensitive, given the leaks that came out of the previous meeting Trump had with the Washington, with Lavrov, in Washington with Lavrov and with the Russian ambassador, that he didn't want, you know, a whole retinue of the acting assistant secretary of state who handles Russia and the acting or real senior director at the National Security Council who would normally accompany McMaster. So he just they just constrained it to that. I'm not too alarmed about that. If that's the biggest problem we have in our Russia relationship, uh, uh, that's not uh, that's not so, that's not much to worry about. I don't again these personal meetings. I mean, Obama had meetings. He met with Medvedev famously in 2012 and said, "After the election, tell Putin I'll have more flexibility." And that was very nice. And they had some nice meetings. Didn't stop Putin from invading Ukraine in early 2014. So I'm very dubious about the in general about the personal benefits of of diplomacy in dealing with dictators who have their own agendas. I think you can have. You, you, a bad meeting, can, you can pay a price. If you signal that you're weak or that you're not going to act, a tough-minded dictator will take a lesson from that, and that's happened in the past in American history. So what you all you can hope for is to sort of send a signal of strength and not being a pushover or a patsy. I hope Trump sent that signal. And at least it was an accomplishment of some sort that he avoided the obvious catastrophes that can come out of this kind of meeting. Right. And generally, I think that's true of the summit. If you look at the press a few days ago, you know, this G20 was going to just be God knows, you know, how much Merkel was going to have to distance herself from Trump. And God knows what would happen to the Putin meeting and North Korea. We were sounding belligerent. And again, I don't know that anything was accomplished, honestly, in, in these different areas. And it may turn out that mistakes were made diplomatically that we'll learn about in the coming days and weeks. But my first blush impression is, that, yeah, as you say, it was not uh, no disasters or not many disasters. And uh, and. Uh, you know, hopefully a chance to kind of toughen up our policies in some of these areas. Let's let's return to the Warsaw speech for just a moment in, in one part, because uh, uh, Donald Trump mentioned as a exemplar of, of Polish-American friendship, uh, Thaddeus Kosciuszko, it's hard to pronounce correctly, Thaddeus yes. Kosciuszko, the great Russian aristocrat who came to fight with the Americans in the Revolution. I have a particular spot in my heart. My son Thaddeus is named after. Thaddeus. Oh, is that right? I didn't even know that. Wow. Um, but uh, as the the Wall Street Journal put it, six months into his first term of office, Mr. Trump finally offered the core of what could become a governing philosophy. It's a determined and affirmative defense of the Western tradition. Do you think they're reading a bit too much into this? And in the same sense. What do you? What would you look for from Donald Trump to think that this speech 
had something to do with his governing philosophy as opposed to just a good speech? Well, I don't know that he has much of a governing philosophy. I think the Journal is probably relieved that he didn't give a full-bore protectionist, isolationist, America first speech. And he made the usual, I would say, but but, but eloquent uh, 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 tips and nods to various, you know, uh, figures from the past who have symbolized our uh, our friendship with our allies, people who have helped us uh, in the fight for the cause of freedom. We've helped them fight for the cause of freedom. He spoke eloquently about the Warsaw Uprising and the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, for example. So I think that that all is somewhat reassuring. I can see where the journal, why the journal wants to go down that path. The idea that the speech by itself is some kind of governing philosophy, is it informing any actual actions that we're taking? I'm not aware of that. I mean, Reagan gave nice speeches, a, they were much more pointed and had a real action agenda behind them. If you think of the speeches he gave in Westminster, I think that was 1982 and, and others like that. He also, more importantly, had a huge defense buildup and he helped the freedom fighters and he changed our policy on nuclear arms negotiations. He did a lot of things that told the world we're in a different, we have a different foreign policy than, than we had under President Carter. I would say actually for all the for all of Trump's attacks on President Obama and for all the fact that he comes at things so differently in style from President Obama, he's done rather little to signal any fundamental break from an Obama-like policy, which I would characterize as one of some retreat, some withdrawal, uh, not real strong American leadership around the world. Obama's is a kind of smooth, liberal, international, you know, form, internationalist form of leading from behind, to take the most one of the most famous phrases from the Obama administration, deferring to the international community and so forth. Trump has that kind of more belligerent, brash, America first uh, rhetoric. But um, at the end of the day, it also turns out to not involve really stepping up, I think, in the way that uh, a Reagan, Bush, McCain uh, person like me would, would want. So I'm worried about Trump's foreign policy. But as I say, he's not. The good news is it's a little more conventional and a little less America first-ish than one thought it might be six months ago. After all of this international talk, on the home front, there was a jobs report. The U.S. economy added 222,000 jobs in June, and the unemployment rate rose slightly because people are actually getting into the labor market. How much room does Trump get from there being some good news economically? Well, obviously, it's better than bad news, and I think it's helping him some. The stock market's had a good run-up under Trump. The jobs-labor situation has been really more the same, I would say, continuing the trends under Obama, which were pretty good. It's not clear where the wages are ever going to go up, which would be very helpful for middle-class and working-class voters. I mean, that is the tr- Trump supporters. Here, here. I'm, I'm all in favor of wages yeah, going Yeah, well, up. me too. I mean, you and I are wage employees, but particularly for you know lower-income, uh, lower-middle-class wage earners, they really have been on a treadmill for— 15, maybe 25, 30 years, it's not clear whether that's changing under Trump. It's not clear that he could. It's not easy to change. I'm not criticizing him. I would say it's very much, I think so far we don't really know. Well, he hasn't passed much legislation, so he hasn't really changed economic policy. Again, people talk about these things as if it's a matter of some speeches or executive orders. Ronald Reagan, you know, passed a major tax reform, tax cut and then tax reform through Congress. He also had a Fed chairman who radically changed uh, Fed policy tightening and crushing out you know, inflation and interest rates at some pretty high cost, which Reagan, to his credit, toughed, toughed out in the 1982 recession. Trump hasn't been through anything like that. So uh, we don't really know how his economic policies are going to work. I, if I were in the Trump White House, my main concern politically 
would be, look, you said six months in office almost, no big foreign policy crises, and pretty good economic sailing, as we were just saying. And still his approval is 38, 40, 41 percent. He just hasn't done much. You'd think with these circumstances you could build some support. You could win over some people who are skeptical. And because of his style and his belligerence and some of the foolish things he said and done, I don't think he's won over anyone much. He's probably lost a few people who voted for him who were kind of getting exasperated with all the yeah, childish 38, behavior. Yeah, 39% uh, yeah, approval that's, rating so that's, just stays locked in. Right, but the, it's locked in with the economy doing well. What happens yeah. if there is a slowdown at some point? Where, where does that 38, 39, 40 go? Now, uh, we started the Crystal Clear podcast by talking about a tweet from uh, the Bill mm. Crystal tweet feed, and I want to end by talking about another tweet, a tweet that made my day, a retweet of a little bit of video of the Springfield Cardinals, an infield triple really scored as, a, as an error, but it, it absolutely made my day. What, what captured you with that? I just happened to see it. I follow a couple of these baseball uh, um, Twitter accounts, which give you you know little clips of either great plays or funny plays from either Major League Baseball or, in this case, Minor League Baseball. And this was a very high pop-up right around the mound that, as sometimes happens, the kind of third baseman, first baseman got sort of confused about who was – maybe the shortstop was in there. I can't remember about who was going to take a, it. There was it a little huddle. It looked like one of those huddles on the mound right. where they were going to see what the pitcher was up to. Right, and then it, and then the ball falls in, and they – kind of kick it around a, t- a bit and pick it up. And at that point, the runner is pretty much around second base. And then he, the runner notices that since the third baseman and shortstop are all in there, there's no one covering third. And the runner just chugs right along into third base, makes it very easily as the uh, whoever picked up the ball was at the first baseman. I can't remember. sort of running to third to try to catch the guy, but he can't. So I, I guess they scored an error, not a triple. But it is an amusing. It was, it's fun to watch. And it's one of those things that there's a lesson to take away from that 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 – uh, struck me. Tell is, me, I, I didn't think of it in this deep way, but I'm glad my, glad my colleagues are, are drawing <laughs> lessons from little baseball, you know, clips of funny minor league baseball uh, errors. That's good. Well, if there's anything I hate, it's when I see a hitter just kind of, you know, stroll down the right. first base path when he's hits uh, uh, the ball into the infield. You got to love the the players who run everything out because. Every now and then, maybe it's one time in a thousand, there's going to be the guys who drop the pop-up infield fly. And if you're paying attention and giving it all you've got every time, um, then there are opportunities to be exploited. And it seems to me that that's one of those sports lessons that's applicable to the world of politics where it seems like, you know, whether it's health care or tax reform, I see a lot of people on the Hill who are kind of strolling down the first base, base path, assuming they've already been thrown out. I think that's really a good a good way of thinking about it. I, I very much agree, especially the alertness. Both the hustle and the alertness are needed, right? The hustle right. gets got this runner to second because he was just running hard from the minute, minute he hit it. But it was the alertness to see, whoa, I can take third base because they're all, they were all, it all converged on the mound that allowed him to do that. So, no, I think more hustle, more alertness would not be a bad idea for our friends uh, on Capitol Hill and elsewhere. Hustle and alertness, words to the wise. That's it for the Crystal Clear Podcast. Be sure to tune in every week. Just go to iTunes or Google Play for a free subscription or go to our website, weeklystandard.com. I'm Eric Felton. Thanks for listening.